Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by my upcoming book, The Influencer Economy, How Creators Thrive and Share the Work They Love. I profile maker, creator, entrepreneurs like Mark Marin, Chris Hartwick, Bill Simmons, The Vlog Brothers, Hannah Hart, and other new media creators. It's a framework for how to launch any business idea in the modern economy. Feel free to hit me up, Ryan at InfluencerEconomy.com. If you're interested in collaborating around any book events, when the book publishes in February, look for the Amazon presale by the end of December. Welcome to episode number 76 of Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. My guest this week is Chris Yeh. Chris Yeh is an entrepreneur, writer, and mentor. He's also a startup investor. He helps people do interesting things as the VP of marketing of PB Works and general partner at the investment firm Wasabi Ventures. Chris also has a well-received blog in Silicon Valley where he talks about being a capitalist in the modern economy. Chris's book, The Alliance, pinpoints the framework for how employees and their employers can trust one another and work together in the modern economy. Chris shares his insights into what it's like writing a book with co-authors Ben Casanova and Reid Hoffman, the prolific investor and founder of LinkedIn. Really excited for Chris to come on the show. Without further ado, you obviously have written the book and it's really successful. And I don't want to compare myself to you because I haven't published my book yet. But I think for people listening, it comes down to you have an idea, explore it and really find the passion about it and where the market demand fits for what kind of what you want to write. Like, How, how did that work for you all? That's right. So we started off by saying there's something here. There's something to the story of the employer and the the manager that we need to explore. And so we talked about it. And basically the process, I started off by just looking at the startup of you and saying, well, if we just took the startup of you and, and inverted it, and looked at it from the manager perspective, what would that look like? And, and that you, can, became... Do you mind explaining what the startup of you was? Yeah. So the startup of you basically said, as an individual employee or as an individual professional in the world, what you have to do is you have to think of yourself as the CEO of the startup of you. In other words, you're looking at your career as if you were the CEO and you're running the company and you need to pursue strategies and you need to follow processes that are going to be the same kinds of processes that a startup CEO follows. So instead of classic career training of, oh, I'm going to join a big company, I'm going to work my way up, it's like, no, I'm a startup. How do I find a breakthrough opportunity? And so when you're looking at yourself as a business, it's like you're not just making decisions based on what you think benefits you in the long run. You're thinking like, this is a business decision. I want to strategically define my career. And you talk about people taking control over their careers more. Absolutely. And people have to understand one of the messages of the Startup of You and which also continues in the Alliance is that as an individual, you're responsible for your career. There's no longer some all-powerful Bureau of Personnel that's going to chart your career for you. You've got to go out and take it yourself. And so that book was more of a, and we'll put this in the show notes, but that book was more of a, a, a guidebook or a toolkit to help introduce that type of thinking to people. And it was written that's by right. Reed, who's the founder of LinkedIn, and Ben, who's a a, a, you know, a writer. And, and so the Silicon Valley mentality is very much entrepreneurial. And now that That's world right. really hits most of America. Most of us are entrepreneurial. We have to work hard to define our careers. That's right. Whether by choice or 
<laughs> just because the economy has changed on us, we all have to think about the world as if we're entrepreneurs, and we have to recognize the world can change constantly. I tell people, listen, when I graduated from college, one of the first things I did is I worked in marketing, and we were launching Juno Online Services, one of the very first free email services, eventually went public, actually. And the way we launched it is we would rent the mailing lists of magazines and send them floppy disks in the mail. I'm like, okay, so if that's what I learned back in 1995, how useful would that capability be today? The answer is not at all. All the things I do that are valuable today uh, when it comes to things like marketing in that functional uh, area are things that I've had to learn along the way. They're not things I learned in school, and I have to continually reinvent myself as well. And you have an MBA? That's right. So I went to Harvard Business School. Uh, it used to be more prestigious to go, but it's still a good thing, I think. And then you went to work for undergrad? So I went to Stanford as an undergrad. Okay. So that's why it, one of the we're teaching this class at Reed and I are teaching the class at Stanford this fall along with John Lilly from Greylock and Alan Blue, one of the other co-founders of LinkedIn. And one of the reasons we did it is that all of us were undergrads at Stanford. Uh, we were most of us were different years. Reed and Alan Blue were classmates, uh, but John and I were different years. But all of us you know, feel a really strong affinity to Stanford and wanted to give back to the school. So this is a great tie-in. So you, the startup of me, in, in a lot of ways, you helped to reverse engineer that for the employee with the alliance. And what That's you right. talk about in the alliance is the alumni network for companies. And it talks about the alumni network of Stanford is probably the – Silicon Valley network for people that really percolates big ideas. Absolutely. And one of the things, look, one of the reasons why we're doing the class, besides the fact that we're giving back to Stanford, is it's useful to Greylock, it's useful to LinkedIn, it's useful to me. I mean, we have got a classroom with a hundred of the smartest students at Stanford University. Well, gee, that seems like that's pretty useful and valuable to have. And so it just makes a lot of sense for everyone to be involved. Yeah, well, it's like you. There's. Uh, I'm sure you've read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Yes, you know, Adam's about, a great guy. You got a. He was a, one of my first podcast guests, and I called him a giver, and he didn't want to be called a giver. He said, "I'm not here to judge myself." <laughs> but he is a giver. I was Let like, me you tell came. You. Up, I had five episodes, and I got an introduction to him, and he, he like fast tracked. He's a very giving and thoughtful guy. Well, I'll give you a story about Adam from the Alliance. With the Alliance, one of the things I I, I didn't know Adam, but I reached out to him because and can you before you seems, can you explain the Alliance before you get into certainly. That? So the book The Alliance is all about the changing relationship between employers and employees, between managers and the people who report to them. And the notion of the alliance is we can no longer think about companies as families, i.e. there's no lifetime employment. Everyone knows that. But we don't want to think of everyone as a free agent either because there's no loyalty, there's no long-term commitment. And so we use the metaphor of the alliance, which is independent people coming together to achieve some mutual goals and objectives that are going to deliver mutual benefits to both parties. And so one of the big ideas in the book is the idea of a tour of duty, that an employee should be on a tour of duty where they're very clear on what their mission is, they're very clear on how accomplishing that mission benefits the company, and how accomplishing that mission benefits their own career. And, uh, and then so back to Adam Grant, you're, you're saying a feature of the book? Yeah, so when we were writing the book... I reached out to Adam, even though I didn't know him, just because it seemed like he was a really interesting guy. And I told him what we were working on. And the first thing he does is he writes back an email. 
this is a guy who's incredibly busy. He has his own best-selling book out. He writes back an email, and he's attached seven different scholarly articles that he thinks might be relevant. He's like, I know that you know, since you guys aren't affiliated with an academic institution, it might be hard for you to get a hold of these things. So I figured I would just download them for you and send them to you. That's cool. And in, and in fact, some of that research ended up in the book. And so that's the kind of guy that Adam Grant is. That's the kind of giver he is. And so for you all, you're teaching this class at Stanford and you're giving back to the community. But then equally, there's all these bright minds that you are collaborating with. So it's the zero-sum game. You know, There's no winners or losers. It's just that everyone benefits from it. Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Just this week, on Tuesday, we interviewed Marissa Mayer, who's the CEO of Yahoo, obviously a publicly traded company, very busy woman, very powerful, very accomplished woman. And she stayed after class for about an hour and a half talking with the students individually. Now, she didn't have to do that, obviously, and, and we told her you don't have to do that. But you know, she just enjoyed it so much that she wanted to do it. And that's the kind of thing that, that happens when you have you know, great people coming together. And I think there's this, like what I love about the alliance is like sort of the, the metrics of business and how you hire people are so outdated. And your tour of duty, you're talking about how you do projects. And you don't necessarily say, I'm going to work for this company for life, but I have a two-year commitment because I love this thing I'm working on. And the family mentality is you don't lay off your family. You're stuck with your family. And that's such a great metaphor because... You always hear like, oh, we're family here, especially when someone's courting you to be hired. That's right. And you have that great uh, moment where you talk about how you sign these term sheets or you're, you're joining a company. It's like, you're an at-will employee. We can lay you off for no reason. We can fire you for a little cause. And that, that's not a family mentality because you can't – I'd love to do that to my brother-in-law. I, I wish my brother-in-law <laughs> was an at-will employee. But the, the well, family metaphor well, is a bit overstated. Well, you know, if you if you if you talk with your uh, your your brother or sister about your brother-in-law, you may be able to get him terminated. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I wish it was that easy. <laughs> but the family the family mentality has been a, it's been overserved to us as employees. Absolutely. I mean, I understand why people like to think of their company as a family. I think that we all want to feel like we belong to something. And I think that the metaphor of family reflects how we'd like to treat each other and to be treated. There's love, there's respect, there's a sense that we're all pulling for each other. But the fact is, as you point out, you can't fire your brother-in-law, I can't fire my children. It's just a very different situation. And so what we say is, look, don't lie to yourself and say it's a family. It's an alliance. But you can take the way that families treat each other with love and respect and apply that across the lifetime in the form of the alumni network. And so can you talk a little bit more about the alumni network? Because you use PayPal as a company that spawned Tesla and all, all, a lot of great companies come from the, the PayPal mafia, for lack of a better term. Absolutely. So if you look at PayPal, the companies that it spawned, Tesla, LinkedIn, SpaceX, you name it, these companies are actually worth more, far more, then PayPal and eBay were put together. And it's quite remarkable that all these people were there at the same time. YouTube. I forgot YouTube because YouTube is so small in comparison to some of these other ones. It's crazy, right? Um, but what we use the PayPal example to demonstrate is that there is incredible value in your former employees. 
there's incredible value in alumni. And yes, you know, historically people ignored it. But if you look at the power of the alumni of, of Stanford, of Harvard Business School, of all these organizations, these colleges, and if you look at the alumni of management consultancies like McKinsey or Bain, they've long understood that there's this incredible power. Now today, because we have technology, we have th- you can set up a LinkedIn group for free. Heck, you know it, it basically costs nothing to actually try to engage with your alumni, and so companies really ought to engage with their alumni. It costs them nothing and delivers incredible benefits, and it's just sort of the legacy of people thinking about, oh, I need to build a directory, I need to have hire full time staff. No, you can do a lot just with a LinkedIn group, for example. And so, would you? You went to business school in the in the mid nineties, and you joked about at the beginning, but a lot of times entrepreneurs, it's a badge of honor. They didn't go to business school. And, you know, there's mythology that investors look at business school candidate, you know, founders differently. Like, would you say now, like these alumni networks in a way, like if you worked early at YouTube or even, you know, PayPal, that that is like a business school, like real hands-on experience that's potentially more valuable because you're getting paid versus going in debt. Absolutely. So if you were, let's, let's take this example. If you could choose between being an ex-Google employee or being a graduate of business school who's never worked in tech and then you went out to get a job in tech, I guarantee you it would be easier to get a job as an ex-Google employee than as an MBA who's never done anything in tech. There's still value to the MBA and to the business school experience. Uh, I, I look around and I think, well, see, gee, look at my classmates and friends. They're the CEOs of various companies. They're general partners at venture capital firms. These are all useful contacts. There's no question about that. But it's no longer the case that you can just sort of say, well, going to business school is the only way to do that. And so if people ask you for advice, do you get that question? Should I go to business school or not? Yeah. I tell them it depends. They don't like that answer, but that's the answer I give. I say it depends. What's your opportunity cost? If you're telling me that your choices are to go to business school or to be VP of product for Uber, I would say, you know, probably you should defer on business school for a while. I I do think that one of my friends made a very good argument and, and was one of the reasons why I went to business school when I did. And this is a friend of mine who was a classmate from Stanford, who went to Stanford Business School, and who is a partner at McKinsey. And when I was trying to figure out if I was going to go to business school or defer, he said very simply, Chris, think about this economically. Do you want to maximize the number of years in your career before you went to HBS, or do you want to maximize the number of years in your career after you went to HBS? And once he put it that way, it was pretty easy for me to figure that out. So I would say if you don't have some sort of compelling reason to do what you're currently doing, maybe you've started a company or you're really riding a rocket ship right now, I think there's a lot of power to going to business school. It's an incredible network. It's an incredible experience. I still talk to my business school classmates practically on a daily basis. Now, admittedly, I'm known for keeping in touch more than a lot of folks, but there's tremendous power to it. Uh, But it's not enough so that you should give up being VP of product for Facebook or VP of product for Uber. So do you feel like you you say you keep in touch with people? Is that something that's always been a part of your personality? Absolutely. Do you notice that the people that you interview at Stanford or the people that like Reed you work with and Ben, are they also, do they have a knack and ability to keep in touch with people? Like, is that like a secret you think that people have? I think it is. I think it's enormously valuable. Somebody like Reed, for example, is a huge believer in both networks and in people. And in many ways, I would say that Reed, you know, values friendship more than just about anyone I know. And I have seen 
people come in to, to visit Reed, you know, happen to be around because we're working on a book. People call, people come in, and there'll be old friends from Stanford. And if it's an old friend from Stanford or an old friend from Oxford, he's always going to make the time. And I think that that's just kind of a reflection of the kind of person he is. So people like, listening are probably thinking, well, if you write a book with someone who's Reed Hoffman, you're going to get a bestseller. It's not that easy unless you buy 100,000 books and Reed puts them on his LinkedIn credit card. Um, yes, that would be nice. But what? how did you all – like? what were some moments where you felt like it was getting traction that you had published it or either done some some pre-marketing that it had gotten some uh, some buzz from the right people? Right. So there were a couple of things that stood out in my mind. I think that, you know, first of all, we got a lot of great press coverage out of it. It helps that in addition to having a publisher working on it, you know, we also had uh, Reed's teams from Greylock and, and LinkedIn interested in seeing this happen. So, of course, that's also a benefit to us. I think that probably the thing that really started driving home the fact that we had some real traction here is when we started to see some corporate sales. So one company would buy 1,000 copies, another company would buy 2,000 copies. We're like, wow, that's a serious commitment. Would you go in person to like do seminars and workshops with them? Or are they just buying the book? Yeah. Yeah, so we would definitely do that. Um, we have, you know, we will, both, both Ben and I will go around and give talks about the, the book. And we've done some work with various companies. We actually have a consultancy called Allied Talent that the, the three authors set up where we go and we help companies adopt the ideas of the alliance. So we've worked with startups and people outside of Silicon Valley, companies ranging from tens of thousands of employees to startups with less than 100 employees. So when you first set out for the book and you decide you're at Reed's house on a Thursday morning and and then when did it finally publish? You said that was back in 2012 when you first started writing it. Um, so what, what when you talk to entrepreneurs and startup founders or people that are entrepreneurial, you know, at their let's say they're, they're working at a job they hate and they want to go work at a startup. Like what are some really key um, examples that you could give listeners that you found through the book? That maybe you think are underrated that they're they're not part of you know the tour of duty part of the of, of the book that people could get something off of. Yep. So it's very common that I'm talking to entrepreneurs who are currently working a job. It's because most of us are not independently wealthy, and so we actually need to have money coming in in order to live. And so I tell several things to them. The first is I tell them, listen, don't quit your job until you're sure that you want to quit your job. And the reason is that. I tell uh, entrepreneurs, if you're a founder, you're probably already robbing your employer blind. There's times when you're sitting in a boring meeting and you're thinking about your company instead of thinking about what's going on in the meeting. Uh, or when you're at your desk, you might be writing an email or two that relate to your business as opposed to the business of the company itself. So if you think that quitting your job is going to give you an extra eight hours a day, you're wrong. It's going to give you an extra four hours a day. The second is oftentimes a company takes a long time to find what Eric Reese is called product market fit. And in my mind, you know, basically you just have to get to the point where you've built something that people really actually want and you know how you're going to get it to them. And that usually takes a couple of iterations. It's very rare that the first thing you set out to do is the final thing that ends up being successful. And if you've quit your job, it's because you have a certain amount of money saved up and you've got a certain amount of runway you're almost always going to need at least twice as much runway as you think. And so it's just a lot easier 
to be in a situation where you actually are working a job and have essentially unlimited runway versus trying to you know, cram all this time into a period of six months or so. If you do that, if you try to cram it in, you're far more likely to look and, and hear what you want to hear from customers as you're doing customer development interviews. You're going to say, well, you know, I haven't got much time left, so I might as well do this, as opposed to sitting back and saying, okay, are we actually ready to do this? Are we actually, have we actually found that product market fit? Have we actually built something that people really want? The third thing I would say is that, and again, this is not always possible, the best thing to do is if you have a relationship of trust with your manager, and this really comes from the alliance, to be clear about what you're trying to do. Uh, it, you know, back when I was helping get Ustream off the ground, one of the things that I did is I told my manager, I was running marketing for Symphonic at the time, and my manager was my friend Han Wong, who was the CEO. I told him, hey, you know, I feel like, and this was in 2007, uh, I said, Han, I feel like this boom is going to end, and I'm worried that I haven't had a chance to take a shot. And so I'm really interested in, in doing this. I have this thing with Ustream. I've been an investor in them. I've been advising them. I think there's a chance that if I go in and I help them more directly for a while, they can really go somewhere. And he said, okay, sounds good. Why don't we do this? You know, Let's not tell anyone else at the company just yet. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep working on stuff. Uh, maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't work out, you can continue to be here. If it does work out, then at least I have plenty of, of advance warning and I'm able to find someone to come in and take over. And that is just an incredibly powerful thing. It allowed both of us to end up in a better situation. Han was able to eventually find someone else to come in and, and run the marketing function. I was able to have a little more time to really think things through and make sure that we had what we needed at Ustream. And it was ultimately a kind of honesty that benefited both sides. And that's something that you guys really impress upon people that read your book, The Alliance, is the honesty and the transparency of the tour of duty with being upfront as both a boss and as a employee that if you are aligned with your overall goals and vision that no one really feels like they're being sold a bill of goods and there's a better product that comes out from that. Exactly. If both parties have clear expectations and both parties are making and keeping promises, that's what builds a relationship of trust and that's what makes that relationship so powerful. This sounds like it's really when you're dating someone in your like mid twenties and the person thinks they're going to get engaged to you. Like this has happened to me and friends and on both sides where you say, Oh yeah, like I'm going to get married to this person. And then they break up with that person out of nowhere because they haven't really had that defining re the relationship conversation, the DTR. I remember what someone called mm -hmm. it. And when I was in my twenties, but it sounds like that's really like where you all see the future of business going to really optimize the products in the long run, it's because it's built on the strength of the, the relationships. Exactly. And just like a relationship that you might be in in your own romantic life, you have to have that trust. It's really kind of difficult to build a long-term romantic relationship if you don't trust the other party. And setting expectations is an important part of that. A funny story on that front, back when my wife and I first started dating, one of the things she told me, and she was trying to be as, as clear as possible, she said, hey, you know, don't expect this to last. I've never gone out with a guy for longer than three months. And so she was trying to be very honest and upfront. And I just said, okay, well, we'll see. And we're uh, 19 years later now. She's a good salesperson, it sounds like, as well. She, and, uh, she, she, she really put expectations out early that you had to earn it. 
Exactly. Expectations were very low and they were well exceeded. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I have one final question and it's actually advice for me because mm-hmm. I, I, I mentioned the book earlier. And so when you all wrote the book, did you feel like publishing a lot of the writing ahead of time, whether it was LinkedIn or chapters on different websites like Harvard Business Review, helped you to drum up buzz? And how much of the content did you actually put online ahead of the book launch? Absolutely. So we actually did a reasonable amount. So we did some, we did excerpts like the introduction, the entire introduction of the book, uh, one or one or two chapters of the book. We put Put out slideshows that basically included the the essential content of the book and allowed people like Business Insider to put them up. And it really is the case that we we live in a world where people want to know what they're getting before they buy, and it just makes sense. I mean, the old days of oh wow, you know, if somebody uh, if somebody has a chance to read a summary of the book before it comes out, they're not going to buy the book. No, that actually makes people more likely to buy the book. And some of the best. Uh, impact on sales we had was from things like Business Insider running slideshows that essentially had the content of the book. Because then people are like, wow, these ideas are great. I really want to explore them in greater depth. I want to buy this book. So you give it out for free and then they'll buy the book and potentially hire you to be a consultant and they're a client of yours. You help reshape their business. So just giving out stuff, giving giving your work out for free really pays pays in spades. Exactly. Now, I do want to make sure that I'm clear. It's not like we took the entire text of the book yeah. and put it out as a torrent. So <laughs> no. w- we did work with BitTorrent, actually. We allowed people to download a- an excerpt off of BitTorrent, but it's always an excerpt or a summary. You can't just give away the actual book itself. So it's like parts of chapters here and there, pieces of con- – like enough to get people engaged and interested in the idea. Exactly. Like a teaser trailer for a movie. You got it. Exactly. You'd never go to see a movie without seeing a trailer first. So why would you do that for a book? Exactly. Well, cool. Well, I don't know if you have any final advice for people like if you're thinking about this, because most of the people listening are going to be creators and entrepreneurs probably looking to join companies like that follow the Alliance principles or starting companies that have these values. Um, but if there's any sort of last story you have that I love, I love like the money ball, like the underrated statistics of people. That, you know, people that think that batting average in baseball was the pinnacle when it's really, you know, on base percentage. Um, any any sort of data you have that you felt like there were characteristics of managers or, or companies that really moved the needle? Like you talked about Marissa Mayer giving and staying an extra hour to talk to people. Anything like that you could you could leave people with? Sure. I think that probably the, the one thing I would leave people with is the notion of you know, honesty and trust. Uh, ultimately, the reason human beings are the dominant creature on the face of the earth is because we can work together. And we can only work together because of trust. When you, you try to replace trust with rules and regulations and playbooks and things like that, you end up with an organization that just doesn't have flexibility, doesn't have adaptability. If you want to have an organization or be part of an organization where you're going to be innovative, you're going to be nimble, you're going to be able to do what needs to be done to succeed in the world today, you have to build that trust. And the best way to build trust, whether it's on the job or in a romantic relationship, is by being really clear about expectations and also about making and keeping promises. So ultimately, I would just tell you, Make and keep promises, and if you do that, you'll be able to build a relationship of trust, whether it's with someone who reports to you, with your manager, with your spouse. 
and, and I think your next book is going to be how to fix your marriage using the alliance. <laughs> that would actually be a good uh, a good a good brand extension. The actual the, the book we are the book that ben, that Reed and I are working on next is a book on scaling up startups. So look for that sometime in 2016 and hopefully that will give people an idea of how they can build a company from the garage until it has 10,000 employees and offices around the globe. Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you, Chris, for coming on. And that was Chris Ye. Super excited for him to be on the show this week. I want to thank my wife for making this episode happen. Our two-year-old daughter was napping today. We're still on holiday. It's Thanksgiving. And I had to get the episode up for this week's show. And she's driving around with my daughter, Julia, who's a little over two years old, sleeping in the back seat. As mentioned in the opening, would love to collaborate with anyone about the book tour coming in January, February, and March. I'll be peaking in South by Southwest where I have a panel about podcasting in the modern economy around community and monetization with my friends Jamel Hill of ESPN and Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News podcast, both of which are past guests on the influencer economy. So going to colleges, startup incubators and accelerators, as well as universities who specialize in media and communications. If you'd like more information, Ryan at InfluencerEconomy.com. And I'm heading over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot with Julia. 